Welcome to this podcast from Field Partner International. We are an online community and resource for Christian missionaries working across cultures. You can visit our website, fieldpartner.org, which features free video courses, blogs, podcasts, sermons, and more. Subscribe to this channel, our YouTube channel, or Facebook page to stay updated on our latest resources. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for joining me. This is Christine Patterson from Field Partner here. And today I have the great pleasure of interview introducing Greg and Lisa to you. Now, for the first time, we're not showing their faces and those are not their real names either. Um, the reason is for security reasons, they don't want to implicate any friends through connection with them. So um, this will become clear through the interview as to why we're doing it that way. Thank you so much, Greg and Lisa. Um, I really appreciate you joining me for this um, for this interview. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Let's start at the beginning. Can you each tell us about your background and where you grew up and how you came to faith? Yes. So I will start. Um, we're both from the States and I'm from West Virginia, which is in the eastern part of the U.S. And I was raised in a Christian family. My parents were both very active in the church and I accepted Jesus as my savior at a young age, around six. But I think I was maybe 12 years old when I really fully understood what it meant to make him Lord of my life. And my parents did a really great job, I think, inviting missionary speakers into our home. And that had a big effect on me. And also they made it possible for me to go on mission trips um, as a child, which also opened my eyes to the world as a bigger place. And that's when God started to draw my heart into missions. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm from... I'm from the Southeast in the Carolinas, and uh-huh. I was raised also in a Christian home, and my dad worked in professional ministry his whole career as a youth pastor and then a pastor, and my mom was actually a missionary kid, so my grandparents were missionaries in Europe, so she was yeah. raised as a missionary kid, and similarly, I came to faith at a young age, six or seven. I remember my dad walking me through the plan of salvation and truly understanding what Jesus has done for us and understanding that I was a sinner. But yeah, it was later in life, probably 10 or 11, that I started taking that more seriously. We also had the privilege of having many missionaries come into our home and our church. And I remember from a young age, God prompting my own heart and asking, why couldn't you do this? And so, yeah, probably around 12 or 13, I started feeling God prompting my heart into international mission work. And then especially when I was 17 and 18 and I realized that there are this group of people called unreached people groups and learned about the 1040 window, I really felt Mm. a strong call into serving God internationally and on the mission field. Great. Wow. And so where did the two of you meet and um, how long have you been married? So we met in Bible college, in a small Bible college in West Virginia, and we were both in the missions program because we both already felt that call on our lives. So it was never a conversation that we had to have. It was just something that we both prayed about where to go. And we were married our junior year of college, actually. We got married, and we've been married for 15 years. Yes. Great. Fantastic. So did you, from the outset, know where you where you would be going? I mean, after having those conversations, was it very clear to both of you? No, we actually 
were very open as to where to go. We had both spent time abroad doing short-term mission trips, so neither of us were too particular on where to go. I think we spent a lot of time in prayer and just asking God where he would send us, and we both felt called to work among unreached people groups. Right. We also had um, our best friends in seminary um, because after Bible college, my husband also went to seminary and um, our best friends moved to China and they were working among a UPG or unreached people group there and they needed some help. They needed teammates. So um, Greg went to visit them and when he was there, yeah, we decided that that would be a great place to serve. And we already also knew that we could do life with this family while they had children and were just dear friends of ours. So we really looked forward to partnering with them. But Mm. one thing that I think most missionaries learn, and we were brand new, but one thing you learn is that if you ever move somewhere with hopes of teaming with someone, it doesn't really last long or, you know, things change. People leave for different reasons, whether it's health related or children's education related or whatever it is. But so we started the path to prepare and go to this city in China. And it took us about two years to get there through the process of the organization we went through. And that family, because they their child had some learning disabilities, they had to relocate before we got there. But we still think that, you know, God used that to take us to that place and that people that we grew to love so dearly. Right, right. And and so this organization, did they give you cross-cultural training, orientation, all that kind of thing? And if so, how important did you feel that was for you to get ready? Yes, before we went to the field, we had some intense training and they had one valuable piece that came to help us later on. They had kind of a contingency training or security training. And that was mm. kind of tough on a lot of people, but it prepared you for interrogations um, and just hostile situations. And we didn't know, but that did definitely play help help us down the road. So before we went, we had some good training. And then after we got there, I'll let Lisa share how they prepared us when we arrived. As far as after we arrived, are you talking about language? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they also helped us with language. And I know, especially for wives and moms, um, looking in hindsight, I would not have become fluent in Mandarin without the preparations that they put in place for both um, the husband and wife. So I was super thankful for this in hindsight. Um, We moved there with three small children. So we had a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and an eight-month-old baby. And moving there, they had already secured an apartment for us that was had basic furnishings and they also secured a house helper which most cultures probably have but china definitely has and this house helper she didn't speak any english but she was such a sweet lady and she was also a believer so i trusted her to take care of our two younger kids the two-year-old and the eight-month-old our five-year-old we put into the preschool there But during the day, um, Greg and I would attend language courses, and it was pretty intense. They required that to be our full-time job until we 
reached a certain proficiency levels. So for 40 hours a week, we studied Mandarin and they had a program which they call GPA or growing participator approach. And you would just interact with your, they called it a nurturer instead of a teacher or tutor, but you would interact with your nurturer and the nurturer could speak no English. So you were full immersion and you would interact with them through hand gestures and things, trying to figure out these words in Mandarin. And we recorded what they were saying. And then we were required to do three hours of focused listening as well after class. So with classes and listening, it added up to 40 hours a week and we had to turn in those timesheets. So it was very strict and very structured. And as a wife and mom, I never would have been able to make time for that if the organization didn't already have our housing set up and help with childcare and also provide the structure with the tutor and the system. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been able to reach um, fluency in Mandarin because it is a difficult language that quickly. Anyways, um, Greg and I both reached fluency in 14 months and were able to move from our city or from that city to our city of focus and begin working with um, the UPG unreached people group there. That's amazing to do it that fast. Uh, was the, did that include uh, writing or was it mainly spoken? No, we did reading, um, but not writing. They didn't require us to write because usually you would use WeChat and you would just text. So you yeah. could, um, as long as you could recognize the characters. So reading and we would text in pinyin so you could spell out the characters and then you just choose the correct one. So no, we right. didn't write. <laughs> Yeah, when when I did language study, we had, we did complicated script here in Taiwan, and um, wow. that, that was very, very difficult. <laughs> and then, of course, I I didn't keep it up when we left for a while, so um, that's been a struggle for me. So you're absolutely right. I mean, getting it at the very beginning is crucial, isn't it? You know, to that that's your main focus to start with. That gives you your competency. Yeah, I think it was very difficult, and it was probably a stressful first year for us with the transition of culture and then the extra stress of intense Mm. language. But in hindsight, I've only ever been very positive and thankful that they did require that of us because it helped us to assimilate into that culture, to have relationships for it to feel like home and to feel like we belonged and to really love that place and that people well from the beginning. Right. And you only needed to learn Mandarin. You didn't need to learn the UPG language. That's correct. We wanted to learn the UPG language and we picked up a little bit of it, but never at the same fluency mm-hmm. um, as we did Mandarin. And the UPG language was an unwritten language. Um, so that would require a lot of going into that village and those peoples and then them teaching you that language. And we could not live among them, but they mm-hmm. all spoke the Mandarin. So that was kind of our common language that we ultimately, our original plan was yes, to learn their heart language, but it just didn't happen like that. Yeah. We tried to ensure some tutors, but it was hard to find a consistent tutor. So, and your kids were were presumably picking it up at home and, and in the preschool, right? I mean, they, they, were, they learn it very easily at that age, don't they? Yes. Kids are amazing. I just 
was so amazed because they can pick it up without studying formally at all. And then they have no accent, whatever. <laughs> they sound exactly <laughs> like the locals. And the locals just love that. Our kids were all blonde hair and blue eyed and they sounded just like the rest of the kids. So that was also <laughs> a really um, useful tool as far as building mm. relationships and being accepted into the community. Right. Chinese love kids, especially mm -hmm. blonde and blue-eyed kids, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do the kids manage their own reactions in terms of being, you know, touched a lot? I, I, I think that that can be difficult. Did they find it difficult or touched or commented on a lot? I don't think it was that difficult for them. They were so young and really their experience in China was just a normal life. you like any other kid. So I think they just kind of realize, hey, this is part of our life here is that we look different. And sometimes mm -hmm. people are going to want to pull our hair or touch our skin. I think once they got maybe a little older and they got a little more sense of personal space, maybe our older kids would comment mm -hmm. on that some or not really like it as much. But overall, I think they were okay with it. Here's mm -hmm. a funny story. Our youngest, if you remember, he was eight months old when we went over. So really, he only knew China and Chinese people. And we didn't really have a lot of foreign friends. So he was maybe five or six when one day we were riding our scooter and he looked around and he was like, he said it in Chinese because his Chinese was much better than his English. But he was like, all these people are Chinese. <laughs> you know, he just realized that That's he true. was different from, yeah. <laughs> from everyone around him. I guess he had never realized that he was any different before, but that was kind of a special moment for me because I just mm. thought, Oh, you are just realizing you're different. <laughs> That's amazing. So, but they they also went into local schools, I understand. Uh, were you planning to keep it that way throughout? Or would that have um would there have been a point where you would have gone for something else? Um that's a good question. So from the beginning, we saw a lot of value of placing our kids in the school system so that they could be fluent and they would have relationships and it would feel like home to all of us. But um, they went to school our, our entire seven years there. And our oldest was 12, I think grade five or six when we left. And I think it would have been difficult to continue into middle school. So I'm not sure what we would have done when it came time to face middle school for him because of how intense the Chinese school system is. But we have a special, a special school situation for them in that it wasn't a traditional Chinese school. It was a, it was considered Waldorf, but it didn't have such strict like lecture and homework and things like that, but it was entirely in Chinese and our kids mm -hmm. were the only foreigners. So it was kind of a really unique situation for them and a really good, it allowed them to thrive and to love school yeah. without it being so, so it, intense. Sorry, you said it was considered Waldor. What does that mean? Well, it was just a non-traditional Chinese school where they didn't stress as much on the writing and the lecture, the kids had more free play and they were mm -hmm. able to um, learn to skills with their hands, different things like that. Yet it was still completely in a Chinese or Mandarin speaking environment. It wasn't an international school or anything like that. So that was a really unique situation Amazing. that the Lord provided for them. Yeah. I've not heard of that before. 
That's great. Um, I mean, the is issue of education is such a tricky one for everyone, isn't it? That we've e each have had to decide for ourselves what was the right thing for our yes. kids. You know, the options being local school or homeschooling, which I gather you're doing now, um, or international schooling, or even leaving the field for a while. Um, yeah. You know, people do that all in all sorts of different mixes, don't they? Um, but your kids enjoyed the whole experience by the sound of it, which is great. Yes. And they made lots of local friends, did they? Yes, they they all really had a great experience in China. We all did. We really loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Even mm -hmm. to this day, they still are benefiting from a lot of the things they learned there at their school, which is crocheting and loving wow. books and things. And so wow. even like right now, they still they're probably crocheting right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, so. Um, but I understand it all came to a crashing halt. So um, maybe you can tell us what happened. I think you you were called in for interrogation because of your involvement. No, wait a minute. We haven't talked about what you were doing. Um, so uh, Lisa, you were you had the visa for for teaching, right? Yes. Well, when we first moved to China, we um, didn't have a visa. We went in as tourists, which is difficult with young children to have to cross the border and leave the country every 60 to 90 days, depending on the tourist visa. But right. we kept trying to get jobs and Greg only had the Bible college and seminary degrees. So he tried to get different jobs, but they always rejected him. And then I also had a nursing degree. So I would just turn in that as my form of education and I never gave my Bible college degree. And I was able to get a job in a um, primary school teaching English that okay. allowed us to stay there long term and not have to leave. So that was a real answer to prayer after many years of doing visa runs on the tourist visa. But we lived in the city because the government restricted us from living among the UPG. And then mostly Greg, we did family trips every few months. But um our kids also going to school and me teaching in the school. Um, it would have to be when there was a significant break for us to be able to take those mm. trips as a family. But we did travel as a family when we could. But mostly it was Greg going out to these places. OK. And, and to do what, Greg? Yeah. So the main focus was just to share the gospel with these unreached people groups. I mean, you can imagine people going their whole lives and never hearing the word Jesus. And it was interesting when I would first mention the word, they would, they literally had no idea. They said, is that some kind of food? What are you talking about? And so then just simply sharing a simple gospel presentation with them that they could understand was the, was the main goal. But as we traveled more, we did realize that there have been some small churches in, in some of these areas. And so then at that point, I would try to build deeper relationships with the leaders of those churches and just help strengthen and disciple them as much as we could. Wow, that's a real privilege. Amazing. Yeah. And presumably build friendships as well with them. So um, did, were, were there others joining in or was it, um, did you get connection with the Han Chinese doing that? So with the particular group that we were working with, I never met any other foreign missionaries at the time we were there, but I did hear stories in the early 90s of some other foreign missionaries that came in to these areas and helped share the gospel. And it's interesting because they actually didn't have 
long-term means to disciple these people. So I heard stories of a church being as big as 200 members or so. But one of the original believers had passed away and they really believed that they could, that God would raise this woman from the dead. And so they had a little bit of errant theology. And when, and when the lady wasn't raised from the dead, many people would fall away from the faith. And then the government, even during that time came in and persecuted this church and took some of the leaders to prison and stole some of their things and even, physically harmed some of the people. So it, it underwent a lot of persecution. So by the time I found this group, there was maybe only 10 or 12 people still left in the church. Were you able to encourage them? Yeah. I mean, we, they, it was great. I would go there um, and spend the night and see how I could help and read the Bible and pray together and even distribute some materials for them. We had some heart language resources and some MP3 players that they could use to go around to surrounding villages and share. And they would come to our house if they needed to go into the city and stay with us. Um, So yeah, we were able to help. And some of, most of them were, um, had enough food, but there were a few families that didn't. And so we were able to help distribute rice and oil to basic needs for them. But Mm. you'd also asked about, you know, working with Han as well. And we did do that in the city that we were in among our neighbors and Haley did a good job with doing Christmas parties and Easter things. So we would have lots of people into our house, especially around the holiday times and be able to naturally share the gospel through Christmas stories and Easter. Okay. And so how, how long did that last then doing those activities and having those, um, that job for Lisa? So when we first moved to China, I knew it was a communist country, but it really did not feel that restrictive. It was quite easy and natural to be able to have these Christmas and Easter parties because most of our neighbors and friends were very interested in Western Mm -hmm. holidays and culture. And it was a very natural means to share the gospel. Um, But in 2017, there seemed to be a security crackdown and Mm -hmm. it got much more difficult and restrictive as to what you could share without getting into trouble. So that became more sensitive in who we would invite. We had friends that we had definite relationships with and we felt safe with, and they actually knew what we believed. No one knew that we were missionaries, but I wouldn't just open it up to who knows who and invite a lot of people that you didn't know and trust. So we had to be much more careful from 2017 onward. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, so when did this event happen then when you were, when I said it would all came to a crashing halt? Well, actually I'll start in January of 2020 when they actually first officially announced coronavirus. We were in a small village because it was the Chinese new year and we were staying with friends and enjoying the Chinese new year when we started to see the first news reports about some mysterious virus. And by God's grace, we arrived home the day before they shut all transportation down, or we would have been in that village for who knows how many months, which may have been good or bad. I don't know. But anyways, um, we arrived home and they locked everything down. And our city, which had a million people, had only 31 COVID cases because everyone was so compliant 
as far as staying home and wearing their masks and hand washing and whatnot. So it was never really scary for us. And it was never an issue. Our organization offered to fly anyone home, but again, we felt completely safe and we didn't want to leave. So Mm -hmm. we were staying there and the kids' schools had shut down, but they were sending so much homework and it was all in Mandarin, which required so many hours for me to translate and try to teach. It was just not going to happen. So that's when I started homeschooling and we just did it in English. And I've always said that was just God's grace as well in preparing us for leaving because that was one less transition that I had to wrap my mind around and the kids had to adjust to after we left. And I'll let Greg share about the day in June when it happened. Yeah. So we were just doing our normal routine, having breakfast and we had a knock on the door and our son went and opened the door and like a bunch of people just stormed in, maybe like eight or 10 FBI agents, I guess, just stormed into our house and immediately confiscated any electronic devices that we had looked all through our house for any like computers or phones and confiscated all of those they informed me that i would need to go with them but lisa could stay home with our children and naturally i was resistant at first like what's going on what basis do you have to take me you know and they were just very insistent that i had to go with them so i took a little packed a little bag i wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen they did tell me that i would be able to come home in the evenings to sleep, which I wasn't you know, sure if that was going to be the case or not. In the end, it was the case. But for the next two and a half days, they came and took me from my house in the morning. And for about 12 hours, I was interrogated at the FBI office. And Lisa was home with our kids. She had to undergo some interrogations for the first day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was kind of what you would see in the movies where you were interrogated, but no physical harm, just mainly emotional and um, just psychological type of interrogations. They were very insistent that I speak Chinese with them. But one of the first things that we learned back in the States through our contingency training before we came was that you never speak Chinese. You would always insist for English and a translator just for the fact that it helps you process and slow things down. I think that's one big interrogation tactic is the faster you speak. And the more you speak, obviously, the more information you would give. So I try to remember all of the things that they taught me through our contingency training, just to slow down, ask for a translator. Um, did did that the, work? Were they, were they yeah. willing for that? Uh, they were, you know, at first for like the first hour, they didn't speak a word of English to me. And I could understand what they were saying, but I just kept saying, sorry, I I need to speak English. You know, I'm an American citizen and English is my first language. I really need to speak English. And they did get like quite upset during that time, you know, yelling and screaming and things. But eventually, after at least an hour, they finally brought in an English translator. Okay. So everything was videotaped and they asked quite a lot of questions to me. But one thing that, you know, our organization taught us was that you just have a safe information box and you continue to keep directing the answers back into the information of you know the safe information so that's that's what i've tried to do as much as possible and you know just speak as little 
speak as little as I could and just keep going back to the facts that, you know, Lisa and I, we just love China. Our kids are here. Yes, we are Christians, but we're not doing anything illegal in this country. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we love, we love our kids, love this country. We love this country. And yeah, just kept going back to the information that Lisa was a teacher and that, yeah, I do travel out. I love to learn about the different cultures. So yeah, there's a lot of safe information that we use. I wouldn't divulge any more sensitive information. So it was a definitely all a rough... of which is true, right? <laughs> yeah. You do love China and you did love the people and you yeah, all of that perfectly yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I don't think they really had a good grounds to deport me or deport our family. I mean, but they they went ahead with the de- deportation of our family as well as many others during the same time all over China. They had a big crackdown and I mean, I estimate maybe 90% of any type of religious worker was deported mm-hmm. from China during that year and a half span or so. Or not able to go back after coronavirus, presumably, as well. That's correct. I was just mm-hmm. going to add that what Greg just said, they didn't have grounds to deport us. He said that because in all of the information that they asked him questions, they didn't pull up anything regarding our contacts and the people we were working with or the trainings that he was doing in the villages, they were only asking us about other, our connection with other missionaries who had been deported previously because they were found to be doing religious work. So because they didn't necessarily have anything on our family is why he said that. And then they still made us to leave. But um, another thing I was going to say that our organization did which was good, was since the security became much tighter, I think in 2019, they started requiring us to do daily check-ins. And you just had to send a message that we're okay because people were getting called in and no one would know because we don't have anyone staying there with us. So Mm -hmm. that day when we did not send our daily check-in, they immediately locked our company email accounts, which would prevent um, if the government officials got into our computers, they wouldn't be able to access that sensitive information, which I also, that's another security thing that they did have in place. Yeah, And it also allowed them to know, okay, this family is not okay. So then someone knew and they didn't find out, you know, a week later, (laughs) but anyway, Mm. that was another thing that took place. But um, Greg shared that when he went into interrogation, they did, maybe four of them, four of the officers stayed with the kids and I in our home. And one of them kept the kids in the back bedroom, um, but the door was open and they weren't questioning my kids. But the other three stayed out and recorded um, an interrogation with me that went on for about three hours. It wasn't very intense and there weren't any questions that I had trouble answering truthfully in the same way that Greg mentioned. But um, after they left, I was at a loss of what to do because I was just so in a state of shock. And the kids and I decided to return our library books um, because that seemed like a responsible thing to do. I assumed we would be leaving soon. So we went to the library to return the books and the librarian who was a friend of ours Um, Notice we weren't taking any new ones. So when she asked, I probably gave too much information in saying that we were probably going back to the States. And at that time, China and America already had kind of 
not so good relations politically. So they just assumed it was political. And she alerted all of our mutual friends on WeChat. And by the end of the day, I had so many people contacting me. And um, it was good, though, because all of our local friends kind of rallied around our family in a form of support and love. And it made us be able to pass those next two to three days where David was gone. And they also knew he was gone and they were calling the police on our behalf. So there was just so much love and support. And it also allowed us to see them and to say goodbye, which so many people who left China didn't get a chance to do. So there was a lot of ways that we saw God's hand and God's blessing and his grace towards our family through a difficult situation. Mm. And so, and the kids presumably were all right through all of that. I mean, they would have picked up their cues from you. Yes, that was something that um, Greg and I, from the very beginning, realized that their view of this culture and this people and these foods would reflect strongly on how we modeled that before them. So Mm. even from the beginning, we only spoke positively in front of them and tried to be a good example to them. So they really loved the people and the culture and the strange foods, everything. They were all about it. So even through this interrogation, um, yeah, they did really well. I did, we, we did continue to talk to them and just to point them to Jesus and that God's in control and that we don't need to be fearful. And they were fine. They were upset about leaving. There were tears um, with the meals that we shared with friends, um, knowing that would be their last time they would see them. My younger two actually were quite excited because they wanted to go see the grandparents and the cousins. (laughs) So they were fine. My oldest was 12 and he had a lot of tears and said, this isn't fair. They can't do this to us. And um, it was harder on him for sure. Mm -hmm. So where did you go then immediately after you were, um, you had, you were asked to leave or you were given tickets out of how did that work you just had to buy your own tickets and leave that's correct yeah they just told us that we had to leave china there was no formal charges or prosecution or anything they just said hey you have to leave and we left within a week i think just maybe five days or so it was quite tricky to actually find plane tickets that were going out of china back into the states because of covid so we ended up having to spend well, four or five times the price on plane tickets, and then quite a long journey going through a few different countries to finally get back to the States. So yeah, we just kind of unexpectedly told our parents, hey, we were going to be, we're going to be coming in in the next day or so. They didn't really know why. And so we shared all that after we came home. So yeah, it was a rough few days. We kind of gave away all of our stuff, tried to pack the things that we thought we wanted in a few suitcases in the moment there's so much adrenaline and so many emotions that you aren't really thinking right to be honest you don't sleep much and everything kind of goes at a blur and so you don't really feel the severity of what happened until months or even years later and I would say even today that Lisa and I are still feeling some of the effects of losing everything you knew just in a moment's notice like that Right. So did your organization give you debriefing when you got back? I mean, did they help you to sort of start to process it? Um, So our organization did have a debriefing 
And they did offer um, some counseling, which we did do only one session of. But honestly, Greg and I didn't find it that helpful. So we didn't continue. And in hindsight, even if we didn't feel like what they offered us was helpful, we should have reached out to someone else and found something that was helpful because we just, all we did was push it down inside and Mm -hmm. we were focusing on our kids and we were focusing on the family that we hadn't seen for years and what God had for us next. And these things kind of just kept resurfacing in the Mm -hmm. difficult times, which we never processed well until this past year when we, we relocated to this new ministry and it all came up and it was ugly. (laughs) (laughs) So can you talk about that? Where did you go next and what, what was difficult and ugly? How much of it can you, can you share? Yeah. So yeah, just through prayer and counselors, we, we saw this position in Cape Town to be a good fit for our family. And long story short, yeah, we ended up coming to Cape Town about one year, exactly one year after we were deported from China. And okay. Cape Town is such an interesting place. You know, it looks very westernized and modern on the outside. And it's quite a beautiful city to live in. But kind of right when you scratch under that first layer of a surface, you really see a different situation here with economic disparity and just um just harsh treatment for certain groups of people and you see so much uh corruption so anyways we we landed here and it was it was just a hard time for us i don't necessarily think it was because of the place we were in cape town but i think we came here maybe a little too fast we probably should have processed things a little bit more for us, we didn't really have any close friends when we came here, so we were trying to figure everything out on our own. Hey, uh, figure everything out on our own. Lisa and I battled with just issues that we never had have dealt with before. I think both of us struggle with depression. There were days that we would just wake up and cry and didn't know why. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was tough for a while. We were that's a lot grief more- too, isn't it? Grief. Yeah. Um, yeah and loss. When we did um, land here, one of the things we struggled so much with was comparing it to China. Yeah. And we, our hearts and our love for China was still so strong that we didn't like anything about this new place. Yeah, the food, everything. It was just... like, oh, it's just not like China. So comparison is never good. And mm-hmm. we had to start praying specifically that God would give us would fill our hearts with love for this place and these people, which he has done. We've been here for 18 months now, but the first few months it was still COVID, which was another thing. It's not necessarily a good idea to move to a new place during COVID because you're isolated in a new place. And then um, just things kept coming up. It was the hardest year for our marriage And we weren't supporting each other well, and we were both really struggling. So that's when we reached out for help um, outside of our organization, trying to find other counselors. And that's when we started to really see, oh, we didn't process this well. And we went through some trauma healing. And you're exactly right, Christine, it was grief. So there's different Mm -hmm. levels of grief, but the three villages that our trauma healing focused on, they called them villages. And um, the first one was um, anger and denial. And then 
hopelessness. And then you would get to the village of hope again, restored. So we had a lot of anger and we went through that hopelessness in these days of depression that we never, ever had before. So, and we weren't supporting each other through these things, which was terrible. So it was very difficult first year, but because of the trials, you know, it, there's so many verses in scripture that you can count it all joy. And it's because, you know, your character will become more like him. You will grow. And we have seen that to be the case. Our marriage is now stronger and better than it's ever been, but we definitely had walked through some fire in the last year, year and a half. Well, there's an awful lot there that um, people need to hear, actually, that, you know, we, we don't actually do ourselves any favors if we don't process things, you know, well, it never goes away, does it, when you just dumb it down? That's right. So we need to process it. And the, and the, but the processing is what brings the healing. So it's, it's, it's great. It's wonderful to hear you say that. It's lovely. Um, so t- can you tell us what you are doing in South Africa then? Yes. So our new job description is focusing on diaspora people. So anyone who is not a local South African, which could mm-hmm. include the Chinese, which was very appealing to us. And it also includes refugees, like African refugees or really any foreigner whatsoever. So when we came here, we hoped to be working more with Chinese, but that just wasn't the case, at least in our area. And we ended up, most of our ministry now is in the townships um, working with refugees. And it includes a lot of mercy ministries. I do have a nursing degree and then teaching English and literacy, also food relief. Um, There's a lot of more physical needs than we ever faced in China. So it's very different. Everything's just very different. So we're still learning also, but we do have an opportunity to work in a Chinese church, which is about 30 minutes from where we stay. And we um, help to teach and train their youth. Oh, that's that's great. So you you still get the, your China fix, <laughs> but have yes. you had to engage with South African culture as a, yet a new culture? I know you don't have to do the language, but um, the culture would obviously yes. be very different. It's so diverse. And I think Greg and I talked about why is it so difficult to really understand this culture? And I think it's, you know, China was easy. You learn one language and one culture, but here it's, I believe they have 11 official languages and just a big melting pot. So it you just can't become proficient or become experts at any one. And then mm-hmm. it proved to be very useful because you're hit with so many in the course of one day. So yeah, it's been a, a harder transition for us, but yeah, we've, we've come to love it and to kind of get into a healthy rhythm and routine for our family. That's great. So, um, well, I'm actually quite moved at the thought that, that with all you've been through, that you're reaching out to refugees. Because I'm just thinking of the, the immediacy of being uprooted in your own experience, and that's exactly what refugees go through, isn't it? Are they from other parts of Africa or from elsewhere in the world as well? Most are from other parts of. Africa. So a lot of people from Zimbabwe and DRC, Malawi. And yeah, it is interesting when you hear their stories. I mean, I've heard some crazy stories of people, how they ended up here in Cape Town. 
but yeah, I do always sense an underlying sense of hurt, kind of the same one that we have felt leaving your home and family, going into a new culture um, and trying to establish your life there once again. You know, someone compared it to like a spider having its web completely destroyed. You know, the spider hits the ground and has some hurt and then has to go and try to rebuild. So you lose all those webs of connections that you had, your support systems. So there is an underlying sense of just um, trauma there. And so, yeah, for, for Lisa and I, we we also have a, a monthly refugee ministry mail where we just have refugees come into our home and we uh, laugh and share games. And you do sense, you know, you do sense a, an e- a little bit of a, you know, just unease and hard time in their life. And we can feel like we can relate to that well. And we always are trying to point people back to Jesus as being our first and foremost hope. And no matter, you know, where our lives lead us, that we can still go back to him. He is our rock and our stronghold. So, yeah. That's brilliant. And and your kids are homeschooled. So for them, that would be an, an opportunity to meet other people. Yes. Homeschooling here is very easy. There's a lot of homeschoolers. So it's very easy for the kids to have connections and extracurriculars and things. And they also go with us in every ministry thing that we do. The kids are involved. So yeah, they're not isolated and don't stay at home that much. Okay. So I I want to bring this to a close, um, but just... um, one question I had was, um, if you had the chance, would you go back? Would you go back to China? Do you? Well, how do you feel about those you've left behind now? Are you able to still stay in touch with them? And I'd say we do have means to continue to stay in touch with some of our friends. And you know, your first question could: Would we go back if we had the opportunity? I think. I mean, I think our gut reaction was, yeah, we would definitely trade trade in our lives for what we had back there, uh, especially if some of the political and just some of the governmental things would ease and go back to how it was when we first arrived. And it's funny, I actually asked our old teammate the same question and he basically had the same answer. Yeah, he would, they're in a different country right now serving as well, but they would trade their lives to go back to what we had there in China as well. So yeah, we loved, we loved our lives there and we loved the work that we could do. We felt it very fulfilling. And I think one day, yeah, we would, strongly consider going back if things changed and the opportunity arose. Great. That's amazing to hear after all you've been through. Um, So as you know, Field Partner is all about helping people to prepare for other cultures, pre-field while they're on the field and then when they get back. Um, So in the light of all that you've been through, how would you recommend other people preparing their hearts? Did the preparation you got um, do that for you? Was it all down to what you've had to learn along the road. Uh, how would you sum it up? Yeah, I would say that as long as you know believers are first and foremost finding their identity in Christ and understanding that, yeah, like the psalmist says, God is our refuge, He's our rock, He's our stronghold. And you keep that, you keep the priorities, the priorities no matter what happens in your life, you know, God will continue to be your friend, be your Abba, and just walk with you through good times and bad times. So yeah, as long as we're not getting called up in the things of the world, it's, 
it's a great journey. It's been an awesome, awesome experience for us. Sure, we've got our focus and our priorities off as we just shared, especially after we were deported. But God brought us back. You know, I think one of the all coolest verses in scripture is that God, who be, the one who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And we know that when he completes that, that that means that he's going to take us to heaven. You know, so through our journey here on earth, he is always molding and shaping us. And yeah, I would definitely encourage people who feel a call to international missions. Yeah, don't let the things of the world, don't let, you know, the what's going on around the media or what other people are saying, your friends or family dissuade you from what you feel God calling you to do. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. That's great. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, both of you, Greg and Lisa. And um, I really, well, I, I know that this will be a lot of encouragement to people. There's so much there that you've said that will um, definitely speak to people's hearts. And I hope a lot of people will share with their friends or anybody that they know. So, and we wish you the best. And um, I'm very glad that you are connected through our friends in South Africa and that I had a chance to meet you this way. Yeah. Good. Nice you. God bless you. Thank, Thank you. You too. Thanks. And thanks for listening. Um, I hope that you will go and um, share this interview with others because um, I think you, there's a lot here that uh, others need to hear. Okay. Bye-bye and God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Field Partner. You can watch or listen to more interviews by subscribing to this channel, our YouTube channel, or our Facebook page. For free cross-cultural mission courses, blogs, sermons, and other resources, visit our website, fieldpartner.org.